logic tends us towards thinking in terms of the universal, the archetypal. Story encourages us to think about the individual, the unique, the idiosyncratic. And when you have a story-focused model of education, the first thing you say is not, what makes every student like every other student? What are the universal assessments that we need to have? Instead, you say, what is individual and unique about this student? That is Dr. Angus Fletcher, a professor of English at Ohio State University, who is a self-described story scientist. He works with dozens of organizations in different industries to infuse the art and the science of storytelling to drive learning and what he refers to as narrative intelligence. Welcome to the AKA Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Anne Kadimian. In each edition of AKA Innovation, I will be talking with leaders and innovators whose bold ideas and actions have led to transformative change within their industries or throughout the world. We will explore these concepts or ideas as a means to inspire and drive change across the educational ecosystem. In today's conversation, we'll hear from Dr. Angus Fletcher of Ohio State University about how effective storytelling can help to revolutionize teaching and to build leadership skills and professionals across a wide spectrum of industries. So Dr. Angus Fletcher, welcome to AKA Innovation. It is absolutely wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining me. It's a huge pleasure to be here, Anne. Thank you so much. I have to, I have to give a shout out in this uh, podcast to my brother, Tim Payway, who introduced me to your work. And he and I have spent many Saturday mornings talking about your work and how it impacts my work and how it impacts his work. He's an artist as well. And so um, what's really impressive about what you do is how your core ideas reach so far and wide in such an impactful way. And that's a big part of what I want to talk with you about today is um, how your core ideas around creativity and how the brain works and the role of stories as technology, how all of that, how we can reflect back to education on that. But I want to start, I want to start with, if it's okay, I want to quote, I want to read a quote from one of your, one of your um, written pieces. This is a, this is a quote from something you wrote called Creative Thinking, a field guide to building your strategic core written for the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. So this is, this is so cool what you did. I'm going to ask you to reflect on this in a minute, but I want to I want to just start off with this quote because I think it touches on so many, so much of your work. And, and then I want you to, you know, maybe you can expand on it um, from this quote. You say, quote, why be more creative? Because creativity is the human brain's power to adapt to fast changing life and death environments, overcoming emergent challenges and leveraging emergent opportunities. It's what enabled our species to thrive in the chaotic and uncertain ecosystems of evolution by natural selection. It makes us anti-fragile in situations where computer AI turns brittle and it will allow you to outcompete and win in volatile, unstable domains. So this is this quote is so has so much packed into it. I wonder if you can help us unpack it and why write this for a field army guide as well. Would love to hear you reflect on that. 
Well, it's a very military quote, first of all. I mean, that's the kind of thing you can only get away with writing a textbook for the army to talk about in, that, in quite that kind of bellicose language. So this whole project got started because I discovered, as many people have discovered, that for years and years and years, our school system has been making students less creative. And this is not something we've just discovered. We've known about this for decades, that by the time you're in third grade, you're less creative than you were in second grade. By the time you're in high school, you're less creative than you were in middle school. By the time you're in college, you're less creative than you were in high school. Um, if you're someone like me who has a PhD, you're the least creative of all. And I just started to think to myself how nuts that is that school is making us less creative. Because isn't creativity one of the most, if not the most important thing you can possibly learn? And so that quote you just quoted is just to remind us that we are born creative. Creativity is something that comes to us biologically. It's how we survive on this earth. It's how our ancestors survive. We survive by, by adapting, by being able to come up with new answers to new problems and also new answers to old problems. And there's something curious about the fact that we've created schools that have taken away this really basic thing that makes us us. And not only makes us us in the sense that it makes us effective, but also makes us happy. I mean, we're happiest when we're being creative. And we all know that transitional period when we join school and we suddenly feel ourselves being suffocated and losing that. And then we also have those moments where we have a teacher who's able to release it from us and, you know, um, allow us to experience it again and put us back in touch with that primordial sense of ourselves. So that quote was basically just to remind us of that. And then finally to remind us of the fact that the thing that we're told is most creative in our world right now is generative AI. We're being told again and again and again that AI is this amazingly imaginative thing. It's somehow going to do all this work. And I can just tell you as someone who has spent years working in AI, who knows the fundamentals, knows the mechanics of it, that it's not creative at all. It's significantly less creative than a child and it will never be as creative as a child. And so I think it's time we start thinking on our educational systems, not about how we're gonna solve this problem by turning to a machine or a computer or something else, but to think how we're gonna solve it by fixing our education system to unleash the creativity that every child brings into the system and that somehow the system squeezes out of the child. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's it. That's a great introduction to our conversation today. And I wonder if we could start a little bit about your own journey. You know, you're an incredibly creative person. I doubt that you've gotten less creative as you've gotten older. <laughs> you know, you bring tremendous creativity to what you do. You combine neuroscience with storytelling and story science and you apply it to the world of special operations and you apply it to AI and you you know you you apply it to leadership and so your core ideas which have have really you know come together with these different disciplines inform so much of what we do today tell us about your journey and how you ended up combining these ideas to get where you are now well I, first of all I have to say I got very lucky I had um good teachers. I had people who were allowed me to break the rules in institutions. I started out at the University of Michigan in a medical school working in a neurophysiology lab. And what we were really studying there is the mechanics of the brain. How does the brain work uh, on a very nuts and bolts level? And one of the first things you learn when you really study the brain is how much more complicated the brain is than a computer. Computers are a relatively simple thing mechanically. It just has these logic gates, really just NAND, nor even just NAND logic gates that do all these functions. The neuron is incredibly complicated, is incredibly sophisticated. And I started to realize that there was all this intelligence in the brain that couldn't be replicated by computers. The most obvious example of this is the fact that computers need lots of data. 
lots of information. That what's, that's what makes them smart. The more data they have, the more information they have, the smarter they get. But humans can be quite intelligent without any data. We're not always intelligent without data, but we can be intelligent without data. And um, we had to be intelligent without data because we were born into a world that was constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. Data was fragile. Data was fleeting. And so we developed these other capacities in our brain. And two of the ones that I most generally emphasize are imagination and common sense. These are both low data forms of intelligence. Imagination is what allows you to create new plans, new plots, new technologies, new medicines, new art, new everything. It's what allows you to evolve, to keep pace with, with, with time. And common sense is what allows you with very little information to say, I don't think that's a good idea. Or, you know what? That might work. And you don't need tons and tons of data to have common sense. We all have common sense, but we don't have it when we're in school. And the longer you stay in school, the less commonsensical you get. I mean, the number of the number of adults I talk to who are just alarmed by the lack of common sense in children, the same thing, you know, because they go into these school systems and they lose their common sense at the same time as they're losing their imagination. And so I was in this neurophysiology lab and I said, I want to learn about the origins of these processes. And I had this very, at the time, controversial, idiosyncratic idea, which was that was driving these processes was not logic, but was narrative, narrative cognition. Because story is a low data activity. You can just have one piece of information and use it to tell a whole story, to imagine all sorts of things. And that's why people sometimes get suspicious of story, but that's also why story can be wonderful. And so I thought, I want to learn about story. I went, got my PhD at Yale and Shakespeare, uh, was considered a little bit of an odd duck there, but I had several faculty took me in, uh, allowed me to do my weird things. I went to Stanford for my first job. I was able to make connections there um, with Pixar worked at Pixar, worked with Pixar, kind of learning a little bit how they were innovating stories, telling new stories. Um, I had this belief that if you could tell a new story, you could tell a new plot, you could tell a new plan, you could do anything. And then I went from there, worked a little bit in Hollywood while I was a professor at the University of Southern California. And now I'm a professor at Ohio State's Project Narrative, which is kind of known as the world's leading academic institute for narrative. And as you said, I have the honor of working with NASA and working with Google X and working with the United States Army Special Operations and working with nurses and working with social workers and, and working with neurodivergent theaters and working with all sorts of different communities, all of whom are bound together by this belief in the power of story, not just to communicate, but to think, to be smart, to be intelligent, uh, to allow us to adapt, to be dynamic, to have common sense and to have imagination. Fantastic. What a great journey and what a great story about that journey as well. Uh, so I, I want to pick up on that and pivot to talking more specific. We've been talking about education, but I want to dig into thinking about individuals in the educational system. And, you know, some of the work that we do here at the universities at Shady Grove is really about trying to support students in fully realizing their strengths, interests, and values, right? Who they are, their agency, their autonomy. And a lot of times when we enter into schools, and you've written and talked about this, you know, it's like entering into an institution that you have to fit into that institution, right? There's a standard way of how we're going to learn and the, the way we're going to test you, and you've got to fit within that institution. But when you're talking about creativity and losing your creativity, right, it's a, it seems like a direct connection between fitting into the institution and fitting into all the testing and the ways we do things. And you got to meet the curriculum and you've got to follow these, these pathways and this is where you get you. It seems like a direct correlation to the loss of the loss of creativity. So let's talk a little bit about how how the 
how the individual, you know, what does this insight that you have mean for how we educate not only young people, but people throughout their career, people throughout their life, you know, lifelong learning. What are the implications of how, how we educate and how might we do this in a more creative way? What are some of the lessons we have from your insights and how we might do this more creatively to allow creativity to flourish. We need more creativity in the world. Yeah, so I agree with everything you just said about education. And the big thing here is, as you're saying, logic tends us towards thinking in terms of the universal, the archetypal. Story encourages us to think about the individual, the unique, the idiosyncratic. And when you have a story-focused model of education, the first thing you say is not, what makes every student like every other student? What are the universal assessments that we need to have? Instead, you say, what is individual and unique about this student? And how do we pull that out? And how do we nourish it? And how do we allow that student to grow in the way that is appropriate for her, not for everybody else? And when I talk about it in that kind of an abstract term, it might seem chaotic. It might seem strange. You know, it might seem unstructured. But this is how I teach all my classes. So as an example, for the last 20 years, I've never assigned a text in my classes. So when I teach a class, for example, on um, narrative, on story, I ask all my students to bring in their favorite story. So I say, you can bring in your favorite novel, you can bring in your favorite comic book, you can bring in an anecdote that your grandfather told you, you can bring in your favorite story. I will never have seen it before. All I need to know is why it's special to you. What do you think is special about it? Then we're gonna identify what's unique about that story, and then we're gonna use it to make another story something that's equally unique, something that takes that insight and then pushes it forward. And anytime you hear a story that's different or unique, it automatically makes you imagine other unique stories. And it's the same thing with the stories of individual lives. When we bring students into our classroom, we encourage them to identify themselves in very generic ways. But if you say to them, what's something special or unique about yourself, something about your background, which is different, the moment they tell that, we can start to imagine a unique future for them. And in the same way that I build my narrative classes to encourage them to bring what's interesting and unique about them into the classroom, we can do that with almost any class. You can say, what are your priorities? What are your kind of unique concerns? What is your unique sense of your own opportunities? Let's start to develop the curriculum around you and let the school use its wisdom and its knowledge to help you take your next step as opposed to socializing you to take its yeah. next step. Yeah, uh, so interesting. And I, I think about the the idea that you don't assign a text, how radical is that, right? I mean, we all, I've been teaching for years as well. And the first thing you do is you write a syllabus and you identify all the readings that the, the students are going to read, right? So tell me about what that's like in your classroom when a, when a student comes in and there's no assigned text and they have to do it. What, what is the reaction of the student? What kind of results do you get from that work? Well, I should start by saying the reaction of my institution, which is my institution was terrified. I mean, the first time I turned in my syllabus and it was a blank sheet, there was just panic across my institution. And then they were like, well, how are we going to assess this? What does this even mean? You know, so on and so forth, you know. Um, but I was able to calm them down because what I was able to demonstrate is that my students end up getting internships and my students end up reporting a higher sense of meaning and engagement in their classes. And my students end up generating more growth outcomes because they're engaged in the material. So the first thing is that the students are surprised and then they feel validated and they say, oh, I, I matter in this class. 
And then the second thing is, is they have this wonderful discovery that they have more to learn about themselves. Because when they bring in their favorite story in this environment, we start to dig into it and we start to say, why do you think this is your special, your favorite story? What is unique about this? What drew it to you? And they start on a, a journey of exploration. And there's something about the stories that we love individually that reveals a lot about our own life story, both in terms of where we came from and where we want to go. And so this is a process of self-discovery. And this is really the original purpose of the humanities. I mean, the original purpose of the humanities is to provide a reflective space in which you can think about where you came from, where you're going, both as an individual and as a group. And story is this wonderful mechanism for going through all of these opportunities and possibilities because story is open and story is flexible and story is low data and story is not predetermined and story is not universal and story is not archetypal. So they enjoy that part of the process very much. They enjoy that discovery part of the process, but then they also enjoy the creative part of the process because then after they've discovered that, I say, all right, well, you brought in an anecdote, you're gonna create an anecdote. You brought in a poem, you're gonna create a poem. You brought in a novel, you're gonna write at least part of a novel. We're gonna do that together. And then what they start to discover is they can do it. They can create something new and they get back in touch with that. And you know what we're always emphasizing through this process is first of all, there's a structure here because you're following the structure that you brought in. So this isn't a chaotic, open-ended process. I can still assess you because I'm assessing you based on your own model. So this isn't a subjective model. This isn't anarchy. Uh, this is in fact, very, very tightly accessible. But on the other hand, because the opportunity is to do something unique, there's also this sense of pushing, of growing, of going beyond the model of stretching the model, of contributing something new. And that whole process is just very empowering for students. And you can do that not obviously just with stories. You can do that with technology. You can do that with medicine. You can do that with politics. You can do that with anything. Students can bring in their models. They can develop their own assessment based off that model. And then they can push the model. And the teacher can help them through this process of assessment and pushing. And the great thing about it from a teacher's perspective is it just keeps you mentally alive. Instead of repeating yourself endlessly for 20 years, you're always learning new things. I mean, I can't tell you the number of new books, new, new movies, new things. I, I get to pretend like I'm cool now because I know all of these things that I wouldn't know otherwise if my students hadn't bring, been bringing them in. So it really is a growth activity for everybody involved. It's so interesting. So rather than thinking about class as a consumption of knowledge, it's about input that stimulates the creativity of the individual. It's about stimulating the creativity. And so, and it, it, is that right? Am I saying that correctly? That it's, it's really about generating the creativity of the individual as opposed to having the individual consume and repeat what they've heard as well. And, and I think about the classes that I've had, you know, in high school and early college where we had to analyze the text, right? We had to say, you know, what is the theme? What are the, you know, and it became this kind of science project that was, that took all the fun out of Romeo and Juliet, you know, <laughs> it took all the fun out of, you know, out of the, the stories that we were reading. Um, almost, I, I don't know, almost taking the create, the creative impulse out of the exercise. And so could you say more about that? And you know, your work with understanding how the brain works and how these stories are, are a way to evoke a kind of reaction, in this case, creativity um, in, in what they're doing. Yeah. So in school today, we're taught to interpret literature. We're taught to interpret it for its themes, its meanings, its representations. 
That's a logic function. If you go back to the origins of logic, something called Aristotle's Organon, written about 350 BC, he has a book in there called Hermeneutics, which is about interpretation. Computers run interpretation. Uh, computers interpret machine language into ASCII. That's how a computer thinks. And that's fine. I don't have anything against computers. Computers are wonderful tools. They're incredibly useful. Logic is an incredibly useful tool. Math has done a lot of important things. But that's not how our brain engages with stories naturally. And there's something perverse about the fact that we would bring stories into a classroom and then read them like a computer. Why don't we read stories the way that our ancestors wrote, read them? You know, I mean, there's a reason that these stories have been around for thousands of years. It wasn't because we were interpreting them. It was because we were reading them like humans. Okay, well, well how does a human read a story? Well, first of all, what a human does is a human engages with the characters. Why is that so important? Well, it's important to engage with the characters because then you start to think like the characters. And when you think like the characters, you're not just thinking like yourself, you're thinking like somebody else. And we talk about this as a process of developing empathy, but it's more than that. It's about showing your brain that it can expand to think in different ways. And when I come up against a problem, I don't just have to think about it in the way that I automatically think about it. I can imagine it from the perspective of different characters that I've imagined in my mind. And I can learn to expand my own imagination by perspective shifting, by shifting my perspective to think like somebody else. Other things that we think about when we read uh, literature naturally is, first of all, we're in a different world. In that world, things work differently. And that's most obvious when we're entering a fantasy novel or when we're entering a science fiction novel. But even when you're reading a novel about another culture, that culture works on different rules than our culture. In fact, if you go over to your neighbor's house, their house operates on subtly different rules than in your house because every little human domain has its own rules. And what you're learning there is that different things are possible in different spaces. And that is also a source of enormous creativity because you can start to imagine yourself, oh, what would be different here if I shifted some of the rules of my environments? So I could think like a different person, I could think like I'm in a different place. And so literature gives you all the benefits of cultural travel, of meeting thousands of friends, of hanging out with some of the most imaginative people all there on your bookshelf. And so it doesn't re replace those things, but it just gives you more access to those things. And that access is really important in a democratic society because we don't all have the money to go traveling. I mean, this is a sort of an aristocratic thing in the day, you know, uh, you would go off, you do your tour of Europe or your tour of somewhere else. And, and if you're wealthy nowadays, you can still do that. You can still afford to have your summer abroad and so on and so forth and your year abroad. A lot of us don't have that money. We don't have that opportunity, but we have that bookshelf. And this gets down to what I think is the kind of fundamentally democratic thing about this approach. There's always been a contradiction, a democratic contradiction in our school system. On the one hand, from the perspective of democracy, fairness is very important. And that's why we've wanted to develop things like standardized tests and assessments so that everyone has a fair shot. And I respect and value that. And I think that's an important part of education. I wouldn't want to totally dismantle that. But the other side of democracy is the sense of realizing your individual potential. The sense that we're going to encourage you to be who you can be. Because we're not a system that's expecting you to be what we want you to be. I'm not a king who's saying, I need this field plowed. Go plow my field. I'm instead a society that's saying, what's the unique potential in you? How can you grow in ways that are different from anyone else? And that's the opportunity of literature by helping you identify the, the books and the stories that you individually like, by allowing you to imagine what's idiosyncratic and unique about different people and different worlds, it explodes that possibility for creative growth and it feeds that other side of democracy, which I think we've lost increasingly in our school system.
So I really appreciate that connection between individual creativity and self-actualization and democracy. I think that is so right on. I want to talk a little bit further about that. Um, and then I want to kind of move to talking about some broader educational changes. But, um, you know, one of the things that I read of yours, uh, listened to was a screenplay 101. You had written, you wrote something about how to write a screenplay, screenplay 101. And what really stuck with me was the lesson in there that you need to know what kind of emotion you want to evoke from this story, right? You need to understand, you need to start with what's the core plot? What's the core message? What are you trying to accomplish with this? What kind of reaction are you trying to draw with this story? And I, th I was thinking about your focus on creativity as well. And some of the work that I've learned from Ed Hidalgo, who's a, who's a good friend and, and colleague who does really brilliant work around student self-actualization, student self-awareness as well, and he's talked with me about this idea of vividness and the ability of an individual to vividly imagine their future. Where do they want to go? Where do they want to end up? And that the more, the more precisely someone can describe their future, even if it doesn't become their future, right? But, but the act of being able to vividly imagine your future, how important that is for the growth of an individual and for where they're going. And I was thinking about, you know, in my own life, this is going to sound a little silly, right? But I remember vividly being a fourth grader and wanting to be a dancer on the Carol Burnett show, right? Like, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Carol Burnett was just all the rage and the dancers looked like they had such a blast. Well, clearly, I didn't become a dancer on the Carol Burnett show because I don't have talent in that way. But um, but the idea that there was something that I that really ex, you know got me excited that I could imagine myself doing that I think this is such an important part of how we grow and develop is being able to imagine a future and think about a future and and I was thinking about the connection to how you are helping people think about story writing and storytelling and the importance of being able to vividly describe where it is you want to what it is you want to accomplish and how to get there as well. Do you see a connection between those two things or I'd love to hear you um, uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. So um, let me just kind of walk through a couple of the, the, the paces of that with you just to uh, verify that I agree with exactly what you think. So the first thing is, is by being able to see where you're going in that vivid way, you generate that enthusiasm in yourself. You generate that passion, that excitement, that drive, that willingness to get up, which is just a very important component of growth, the ability to motivate yourself, to have a sense of purpose, of direction. So that is very important. But also, as you said, to be able to visualize every single individual step, that's known as planning. That's incredibly important because what the human brain does is it jumps into the future as far as it can. And then it tries to walk backwards step by step by step by step by step to the present. And if it can jump really far, but then walk back to the present, it can make anything happen. And when you're a child, you are often able to jump further than you can walk back. <laughs> so you will jump and you'll say, I will be a dragon. You know, I will be a dancer on the Carabinet show. I will do all these kinds of things, you know. And then what happens is, is you get to school and school says, oh, well, you haven't figured out how to get there yet. So just forget all those dreams. Instead, let's learn the two steps that we can teach you, you know, and then everybody takes the same two steps forwards. But instead, what you want is you want to maintain that far dream while getting better and better and better at planning those individual steps. 
And of course, you're right. That doesn't mean that you can somehow create the future exactly as you see it. But the more that you develop those two capacities in your mind, first of all, the more imaginative your jumps are. And second of all, the more effective your plans are. And over time, if you strengthen those two capacities in your brain, you're able to do extraordinary things, the same things that your heroes have probably done. I mean, uh, anyone who has become a successful dancer has done that. Anyone who has created a successful dance, you know, has choreographed it, has had to have this imagination of all these different moving parts, but then is able to sit down. And how many of us have this amazing idea for a novel, but never actually sit down and write out all the steps for it? How many of us have an amazing dream for business, but never sit down and, and put together all the steps for it? And school can help empower us to do that step making by walking us through these narrative exercises. Because if you can sit down and you can write a screenplay and you can put in every step that every character is making in that screenplay to get to the end of the screenplay, you can do the same thing with a business plan. You can do the same thing with founding a dance company. And so those are the muscles in the brain that you can start to strengthen. And those are deeply imaginative muscles, but they're also deeply individual muscles because I can tell you, none of us is going to plot those steps the same. Each of us is going to find our own path up our own mountain. And that's your earlier point is where the democracy comes in. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so how do we take some of these ideas around imagination, creativity? And by the way, I really appreciate how you have given meaning to creativity and how that different is differentiated from innovation. I read in one of your works that creativity is the, it's the idea, it's the spark, it's the, you know, but innovation is when you actually implement it, when you do something with that creativity and make it real. So that's a really helpful distinction, I think, for all of us in the way we kind of carelessly use the term innovation. So thank you for that as well. But let's think about some of this work and how it applies to how we organize for education, you know, how we come together for education. And, you know, I was, uh, I was in a discussion over the weekend with a number of educational leaders and we were being asked about collaboration and why can't we do more collaborative work across community colleges and other higher education institutions and um, public schools and other nonprofit partners. And um, I, I suggested that one of the reasons why it's so hard is because we have business models and organizational structures that don't encourage collaboration and that, in fact, they get in the way of a lot of collaboration as well. And, you know, that to be able to foster that kind of collaboration, we probably need to find a way to get beyond some of those restrictions or find ways to circumvent them um, in order to do that. Could you talk a little bit about how your approach to creativity and storytelling and the way we understand, you know, the way we can generate creativity that leads to innovation, how might that help us think about organizing to be, you know, to really bring out this creativity in our educational process? If we want every child to have this kind of opportunity to fully realize who they are and their creativity, how might we better organize to do that? And think maybe whole, more holistically about our educational system as well. Yeah, well, I mean, as we all know, working in educational bureaucracies, bureaucracies are meant to empower learners, but often they just suffocate everybody in the bureaucracy. And one of the reasons that I was lucky to start working with the U.S. Army, and in particular special operations, is because it, it shifted my understanding of organizations. And I, as a faculty member, have always felt myself at war with my administration. I've always felt like I had to, you know, do these checklists, you know, particularly I'm in a large state school. And so we have these 
um, sort of large, unwieldy computer systems we always have to fit everything into. And so much of your time is like filling out forms and checking boxes and all these kinds of things. And what I started to learn in working with special operations is that there's a different way to think about how organizations can run. And the first thing to understand is that our current organizational system is based around management. And management is based upon this idea of having these systems of uniformity, which are essentially kind of top down. And, you know, the top down can be nice. It can be persuasive. Uh, you know, it can be collaborative in the sense they can be listening. But the goal of the system is ultimately to create uniformity and conformity and all these kinds of things, you know, standardization through the system. And so that's a kind of management structure. But instead of a management structure, we could also have something more democratic, which is a leadership structure. And in a leadership structure, everyone is empowered to be a leader. We lead ourselves and teams learn to lead themselves. And so what happens over time is you shift from a, a, a structure, which is essentially a kind of surveillance structure in which everyone is being monitored and assessed to make sure that everything is working to more of a trust structure in which we start to work together and we start to trust each other. And we're able to trust each other because we see that the more we work together, the more that it works. Now, for that to happen, you have to start in small teams. You can't all of a sudden turn an organization into a team overnight. You can't have, have this ethos permeate overnight. But the wonderful thing about educational systems is they are built out of teams. They are built out of classes. And so if you start with thinking about every class as leading itself, and you start thinking about the teacher empowering the students to lead themselves on this educational journey, then what you start to think is, okay, we're building all these teams. And then all these teams can start to move the university. And then the purpose of the administration is to do what it does in special operations, which is to resource and support, not to manage, you know? And obviously if a team is struggling or if a team is obviously going in a direction which is not helpful to the members of the team or, you know, the larger organization, you can come in, you can start to ask questions. You can say, hey, do you need to do it this way? but you're not giving them the plan from the outset. You're not giving them the structure from the outset because the moment you're doing that, you're limiting learning. You're saying, this is as far as the organization can go. It can go only as far as my own vision for it. As opposed to if you flip that, then it can go as far as everyone's collective imagination. So I personally think that educational institutions, much more than businesses, are set up naturally to lead themselves. And they've had a long history of leading themselves. But over the last 20 or 30 years, as we all know, this management structure has been imported from business into universities. And I think there have been some gains perhaps from it, but I think it is threatening to smother uh, what is the kind of natural, organic ingenuity and intelligence of the people within it. And the number of teachers and students who I talk to who are just demoralized, who feel like they're just fighting the system or they're just trying to find a class that fits this schedule block, so they can graduate and do this kind of requirement, as opposed to feeling this is a place where I can become my fullest self and walking into a classroom and thinking these are the most special moments of my life. And that's what I think is really tragic because you know, in my own family, so many of the individuals in my family in previous generations were denied an education. And you know, when I think about you know, my grandmother who wanted nothing more than to go to college and it was just impossible. She could never go to college. And then I think of her mother who didn't even go to high school. 
And I think of all those generations who dreamed and dreamed and dreamed of going to school, who had one or two books in their library that they read over and over and over and over again. And then I think we're in this world now where we have so many books and we have so many classrooms and we have so much opportunity, but we're not making full advantage of it. So that I think is, is the real tragedy, but I think it's, it's within our power to change and, and, and change it quite rapidly. So uh, the, in, the focus on bringing those corporate management structures to education is really interesting. And this is a conversation I've actually had with my brother on many occasions about those corporate management systems bring with them measures and definitions of accountability. And, you know, after reading your work, I start to question well, what, what do we measure? I mean, what is an outcome in this world that where we're focused more on creativity? I don't say that in a disparaging way. I say that in a really curious way. Like, I think we are limited by what we can do when we're always looking for a measure for what we're doing or when we're looking for things that we can measure for what we're doing. And, you know, your work suggests that there, there should be different ways we're thinking about accountability and, you know, does it even make sense to say, are you meeting the metrics if we're using the creative side of our brain as opposed to the logic side of our brain, right? There's, when I think of the management system, I think of your description of the, the logic side of the brain and, you know, that there's a, that, that extends to this idea of hierarchy, hierarchy and management and metrics and all of that. Whereas if you're really focused on creativity and the development of the individual, you know, what does a system look like that can do that? I think the way you've described the classrooms as the teams is beautiful. I love that. Um, but does it even make sense to think about outcome measures in a, in a world like that? Are, are we, is, is that in, a, in and of itself, the idea that we need a metric, is that a barrier that we're putting up for ourselves in terms of our ability to think forward and to to show progress somehow? Does does progress make sense in in our traditional way of thinking of it when we are limited by what we can measure? So I'm a biologist and because I'm a biologist, I'm not opposed to the idea of outcomes and I'm not opposed to the idea of measures. I mean, I think at a a certain level, you know, um, nature can be hard and we need to figure out how to survive in it, you know? So I, I certainly wouldn't want people to think that I'm advocating a kind of magical thinking universe in which we all just, you know, have finger paints and, you know, have a good time. The two things that I think are, first of all, just because we don't, just because, just because we don't have an assessment for something doesn't mean it isn't real. And we're trapped with this problem that we have a small number of effective assessments, and then we have turned all of our teaching onto those. And so all we do now is teach things that we have assessments for. And that is a failure of imagination. And I think that is one of the things that is that is killing schools right now is is this obsession with with certain very narrow types of assessment. Um, The other thing I often say to people is I work with special operators. You think special operators don't live in an outcome driven world? You don't think it's very important as a special operator to be able to succeed, you know, You know, if we're going on a hostage rescue mission, we rescue the hostage or we don't. Uh, Somebody lives or somebody dies. So there are outcomes. We have to start shifting to think of more practical outcomes, outcomes that are more rooted in reality as opposed to standardized tests. I mean, one of the things I just find astonishing is when people are obsessed with metrics, it's not like you go out in the real world and take a standardized test somehow. You don't take a standardized test and then somehow food grows. You don't take a standardized test and then somehow you invent something, you know? These are completely artificial forms of assessment. 
So why don't we start thinking about other forms of assessment that are more real world? So for example, just a, just a few simple examples. Uh, in, my, um, in my writing classes, we often have the students, we bring in experienced writers, maybe experienced producers, and we have them assess the screenplay or we have them assess the novel. We get an agent to come in or an editor to come in and say, here's what I think of this novel. We have them apply for internships. And are you effective at getting internships? When I teach, so I, I teach in, in several MBA programs, uh, which often astonishes and surprises people, you know, because I don't actually have an MBA and, and you know, would in theory have no qualifications to work in business. But when I teach in MBA programs, um, we assess students by bringing in experienced members of their field, of their industry to say, yes, I think this business plan could work. No, I don't think it could work. Yes, I would fund you. We might bring in an investor and say, yes, I would fund you. There are all these real world assessments you can develop schools um, uh, to, to build classes towards. And they're, they're completely efficacious and they have nothing to do whatsoever with standardized testing. So I think that there's just a kind of double failure of imagination here that, I mean, I remember, you know, when I first started teaching, I was teaching a lecture class and the person who was giving me the class said, you're going to have to assess them a standardized test because there's no way you can grade 300 students at a time. You just got to come up with quizzes. And I think that 99% of the quizzes that are administered in universities are simply there because instructors have no other way that they know of to efficiently assess the students. So it's simply an efficiency thing, as opposed to I really believe that it works. And I think that's a fail. That's a fail. Um, so I think there's that failure of imagination. And there's just the failure to think how, as a school, could we open ourselves to outside assessors who are the people that our students are trying to become? Our students aren't trying to become professors. Our students are trying to become doctors. So let's bring a doctor into the classroom and see how the doctor responds to our projects. Our students are trying to become engineers. Let's bring someone from NASA in and see how the NASA scientists thinks through our blueprints. And we have access to so many experienced people, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who want to give back to schools, who are alumni. Instead, all we do is ask them for money. We don't ask them to come back and give them more valuable thing, which is their wisdom and life experience and time. So there's all these opportunities out there. And I just think that we as schools are, are, are failing to, to, to grasp it. I think that's so right on. I remember as a, as a parent of two young girls, um, you know, being asked to bring cookies or something to drink for an over-the-top Valentine's Day party, but no one ever asking me if I wanted to come in and talk about government or, you know, um, you know, uh, writing a book or whatever it may be. I thought, you know, there's a lot of talent here among all the parents and we could be more engaged in, in ways other than just bringing treats for an over-the-top Valentine's Day party. So, um, no, I think you're absolutely right. I like that. So I'm going to, uh, let's wrap up. I want to wrap up with a question that um, asking you to give advice to someone who is aspiring to be a professor, someone who wants to be in academia, who wants to teach from your experience and, you know, your, your approach to teaching, to writing, you have a wonderful new book called Wonderworks. You know, what, what kind of insight or advice would you give someone to who's looking for assurance for this career path or, you know, wondering if this is a joyful way to go in life? What, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that there is nothing more joyful than learning. I mean, the human brain evolved to grow. So there's nothing more fantastic you can do 
than become a teacher because to become a teacher is constantly have to stay one step ahead of your students. I will also say, you know, for me, um, there's nothing that has a greater sense of purpose. So I'll just tell a quick story about why I decided to become a teacher. It was my first year of college. I was very disenchanted at college. I was reading all these textbooks that seemed like they had no relationship to my life. I was being taught by these teachers who'd never been out in the real world. I thought I'm just kind of sitting here and kind of uh, wasting my life. And I had this professor who was assigned to me who was Iranian. And because he was Iranian, he didn't speak English very well. And a lot of the other students didn't really pay much attention to him. And, you know, they thought he was a bit silly. But I started to listen to him and I realized that here was someone who had escaped from an oppressive regime in Iran, had come to America, was fighting every day uh, to teach in his homeland and had come here. And the enormous joy and the enormous pleasure he got to, to teach in a society where he was allowed to teach anything and ask any question that he wanted and research any topic that he wanted. And then... Here was the moment that really did it for me. I, I love this teacher so much that after the semester was over, I went home and I came back the next semester to take another class with him. And I didn't see his name anywhere in uh, the class book. And so I went to the department. He was an anthropology professor. I went to the anthropology department. I said, you know, where's the professor? And they said, well, unfortunately, we have to tell you something, which is that he went back to Iran and he was captured and he was executed. And I had this moment where I thought to myself, how could that possibly happen? And then I realized that in his mind, he had what he thought was wisdom inside himself. And it was wrong for him not to risk that to go back and to teach. And I realized then in that moment that teaching isn't just a joy. Teaching is a responsibility. Teaching is an obligation. Teaching is something heroic. And I've always in my career said to myself, you've got to be courageous. Uh, you've got to take that risk because on the other side there is a student whose life you could change like my life was changed. And so I, I always think back to that professor. I always think back to what a, what a, what a, what a gift and opportunity it is, is to be a teacher. And I would just say uh, uh, to students, every day as a teacher, there is that chance to ask the question that no one's going to ask. There's that chance to teach the student that no one thinks can be taught. There is that opportunity to be heroic. And when you change that one life, that change changes so many other lives that you can't even see. Angus, that is such a beautiful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And, um, I, you know, I don't know if you know that... The fact that he was from Iran is near and dear to my heart, as my husband is Iranian, who also left Iran as well, so and became a teacher before he became a doctor. So um, I really appreciate that story very much, and thank you for sharing it. Thank you for taking time with us today. Um, this has been a fabulous conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for having me on, Anne, and anytime. Keep doing all the great things you're doing. I can't wait to read the next book. Take care. Bye.